I'm going to begin with a prayer. Please bow your heads to pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Last week we began our new sermon series as a church family looking at Mark's gospel together. This morning I have the privilege of continuing with what happened after Jesus was baptized. It'd be helpful if you could have a Bible to hand to to follow along with what I'm saying this morning. Uh, So do get a Bible out now and turn up Mark chapter 1, verses 14 uh, onwards, which Aaron just read for us. Uh, You'll probably find it more helpful to have a physical Bible in your hand as you can uh, glance to and fro as we go through this passage, but an iPad or a phone will be just as good. Uh, Whilst you're getting there, uh, I'll just take a few minutes to share with you uh, some helpful tools and context that uh, you might be able to use when you approach this book. And these are things that I was taught uh, when I first came to Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark's is the shortest gospel of the four, uh, but it's also the most punchiest. Throughout the book, it feels like Mark is taking us on an electric roller coaster ride with the brakes completely removed. It's not always obvious in our Bible translations, but in other translations, uh, Mark seems to start almost every new paragraph with the word immediately. In fact, in our short section this morning, the word translated immediately comes up six or seven times. There's pace in this book. There's momentum. It's a, a book that's going somewhere and we're being pulled along in its slipstream. So I'd encourage you to, to set apart some time between now and in this series uh, to read this book cover to cover in one sitting like a novel. You could probably finish it in about an hour and a half if you were to, to read it in one go. Or why not listen to it as an audio Bible? And there's many tools to do that. It'd be well worth your time to, to listen to Mark's story of Jesus' life in one sitting. The book itself breaks uh, quite neatly into two halves. Uh, The first half, chapter 1 through to chapter 8, verse 26, uh, looks at uh, the authority of Jesus, which he demonstrated uh, in Galilee uh, and going out just beyond that. The second half, uh, chapters uh, 8, 27 onwards, uh, looks at the rejection Jesus Jesus faces because of the authority he claims to have. And that's why we've invited our mission link, Open Door, to preach right at the end of our series, looking especially at the rejection that people around the world, brothers and sisters, face in their countries for following and being obedient to Jesus' authority. As a church, we'll be following roughly the same structure, and the song that was written by Steve and Emma will be really helpful in helping us to remember that, won't it? In the chorus, which we just sang, we say, Jesus has the power, power being another word for Jesus' authority. And we're also saying that he gave his life for many, reminding us of his rejection. Authority and rejection, the two halves of this book. Mark is also really clear from the first verse what his book is about, isn't he? If you glance over to chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that Mark writes this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. You probably know this, but uh, the word gospel means good news. Good news about who? Well, about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? Well, according to Mark, he's the Messiah. That's a a Hebrew word, which means chosen one, or the anointed one, or a set-apart one. In Greek, that word Messiah becomes Christ. You know this, I'm sure, but Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It's his title. He's Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Anointed One, Jesus the Chosen One, Jesus the Set-Apart One, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also, so Mark tells us from the start, the Son of God. 
I mean, that's a a huge statement, isn't it? Uh, Right in the first sentence of this book. But that's what Mark does. And the rest of this punchy, roller coaster ride of a book, Mark is going to to prove to to you, to us, that this is true. Now, uh, Mark himself wasn't an eyewitness to the things he writes about, but his source is just about as credible as you can get. You see, uh, we meet Mark in the Bible itself uh, only once in chapter 12 of the book of Acts. Uh, And there he's called John Mark, and he becomes a traveling companion of Peter, uh, one of Jesus' closest disciples. Uh, Slightly later writings after the Bible confirm that Mark was Peter's attendant in traveling and his writer, and that what we have in this this short book are Jesus' words and deeds as reported by Peter to Mark. And that makes what we read even more striking, doesn't it? Because if you've read this uh, gospel, which I'm sure you have, uh, you'll know that Peter doesn't paint himself in the best light in this book. Uh, Finally, as you read the book, uh, keep an eye out for what we call the messianic secret. And this is the fact that Jesus performs uh, healings and miracles and exorcisms that point to him being the Messiah, remember the Christ-anointed one. But when he does that, he regularly tells people to keep quiet about them. But they don't. Uh, Except, of course, uh, as you'll see when he bursts forth from the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, where some women are told to go and share the good news, but instead they do keep quiet, uh, temporarily at least. Uh, So with all that background in place, uh, let's dive into Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 39 for the next 15 minutes or so that I have left. There's a lot going on, isn't there, in this brief encounter, but in the short time I have, I I want to ask a question. Jesus is God's holy one who proclaims God's good news. The question to answer is, how will we respond to Jesus' authority? This section begins and ends with Jesus doing the thing that he came to earth to do. Verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. You remember last week that Jesus was baptized, saying to the crowd around him and to us that he has come to the world as our champion, our captain. And then he bursts out of the waters to take his first breath in his new calling and the the heavens are ripped open. The Holy Spirit comes down onto and into him like a dove, anointing him, drenching him with himself. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Holy Spirit anointed one of God. And in the moment, God the Father speaks from heaven telling Jesus and everyone on the shore of the Jordan River that day that this is God's Son. And God loves him. God delights in him. Now, people often say the Trinity is not in the Bible. It's a made-up thing. Uh, Where do we get it from? While it's true the word Trinity doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, we see it right here, don't we? In this single glorious moment captured for us through Peter's words to mark his attendant, we see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all together, all delighting in each other. The Trinity is right here. But there's no hanging around because uh, we get that word immediately or at once as the NIV has it in verse 12. 
At once, the Holy Spirit, who has anointed Jesus, sends him into the wilderness for 40 days of preparation for his three-year ministry to come, uh, being tempted by the devil, uh, living among the wild animals, and being attended by the angels. Emmanuel said just now, didn't he, that Lent has just started, so I don't know how you always spend your 40 days. Maybe the wilderness, maybe being tempted by the devil, maybe being attended by angels, I don't know. But this was Jesus' time of preparation. Having been baptized, having been anointed by God's Holy Spirit, having received his Father's affirmation, and having given himself to 40 days of fasting and prayerful preparation, now, in this moment, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And he does it by proclaiming the good news. Remember, brothers and sisters, Jesus is God's Holy One who proclaims God's good news. What's the good news of God? Well, remember verse 1. The good news is that the Messiah, the Christ, the Holy Spirit anointed one, the Son of God, the Lord is here. That's the good news. That's the gospel. If you jump ahead to the end of our section in verse 38, Jesus tells his disciples that they should move to another village. Why? To preach. To proclaim the good news. Why? Because, Jesus says there, this is why I have come. You see, we can marvel at Jesus' miracles, and we can be amazed at his healings, and we can be awestruck by the power and authority he demonstrates over demons. But first and foremost, Jesus' ministry was a proclaiming ministry. Proclaiming and preaching are the same word in Greek. Jesus had come to preach. Remember, Jesus is God's holy one who proclaims God's good news. Did you notice when Jesus began to preach? Verse 14. It was only after John the Baptist was put in prison. What was John doing before he was arrested? Verse 4. He was preaching or proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was a prophet, a messenger sent from God, verse 2, anointed by God's Holy Spirit from birth to proclaim God's good news. Don't you see, brothers and sisters, that John was now in prison, but God's good news, it can't be locked up. It's just too good. Now, prophecy, that word, can broadly be defined as proclaiming God's words or God's message. And that's what Jesus was about. Proclaiming God's word, proclaiming God's message, proclaiming the good news of God. Remember, Jesus is God's holy one who proclaims God's good news. The signs and wonders he performed helped to to stamp his preached message with authority by showing that the kingdom of God was forcing its way itself in through our world, through Jesus. Why do I say this? Because as we see time again in Mark's gospel and the others, the miracles themselves rarely lead a person to faith. People are often amazed. They're often awestruck. But the miracles and healings themselves don't say anything. They they have no message. It is the proclaimed message of Jesus that brings repentance that leads to salvation. The miracles serve to reinforce this message. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' mission was a preaching mission, a prophetic mission. Remember, Jesus is God's holy one who proclaims God's good news. 
And if you are sitting here today, wherever you are in the world, as someone whose heart has been transformed by the message of Jesus, if you too have found faith in Jesus the Messiah and have been anointed by his Holy Spirit, and let me tell you, every single person who believes have been anointed by God's Spirit. That's not a special thing that happens to the, the super spiritual, no. God's Holy Spirit anoints everyone who believes in Jesus. If that's you, then you too have been charged by God himself with a prophetic ministry to go out into the world, your workplace, the supermarket, the takeaway, your Zoom calls, your neighborhood, your social media feed, your schools, your university, everywhere you go, God has anointed you with his spirit to have a prophetic preaching, proclaiming ministry of proclaiming God's good news, his gospel to those God himself has placed around you. In verse 16 to 20, Jesus called his first disciples to join him in this ministry of proclaiming God's good news that leads to repentance, which brings salvation through the forgiveness of sins. This was John the Baptist's message. This was Jesus' message. This is and will be his disciples' message. Brothers and sisters, don't you see? If we believe in Jesus, this is our message too. Remember, Jesus is God's Holy One who proclaims God's good news. This is a preaching ministry that is stamped with the authority of God himself and the miracles Jesus performs reinforce the authority as we're about to witness. So the people of this village, verse 22, have uh, turned up to their normal Saturday morning worship in the synagogue uh, to hear the words of their teachers uh, waffle about this and that and quoting uh, famous rabbis to show how well read they were. You see, the power of the religious leaders, the power of their words, uh, rested in other teachers that they quoted or appealed to. Their authority is what we'd say was a, a derived authority. But here stood Jesus, the, the Son of God, as God himself has already told us in verse 11. And his words have power because the word he quotes is his own word, as John's gospel reminds us. Jesus' words are stamped with the authority of God himself, now standing before us in the Holy Spirit anointed person of his Son. And the people are amazed at the authority in his teaching, verse 22. Among the crowd of astonished worshippers, one congregation member becomes increasingly uncomfortable, verse 23. A man so consumed by the desires of this impure spirit that he has become completely overcome by it. He's demon-possessed. Like how we can say that a person can be in love or in a mood or in a rage... We can say of this poor man that he was in an impure spirit, even though the spirit lived inside him. Don't we see this in the world today? When a person is so consumed by their evil desires that they are completely given over to them. Think about the gambler who can't stop. Think about the person who's addicted to their lustful cravings, who just keeps clicking those internet links. Think about the drunk who can't stay sober. Think about the person who pursues a wicked affair outside of marriage 
because they just couldn't help themselves. These may not be demons, sure, but in the same way that demons become masters over their hosts, so can the devil gain mastery over us when we make him the authority in our lives, when we listen to the foul lies that he proclaims rather than God's good news. I'm not going to comment much on demons and demon possession today because that's not the key point of our passage. But do hear me when I say that the devil is real. His demons are real. We would do well to remember Paul's words to the Ephesian believers in chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 of that letter. Paul writes, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. The man in our story is confronted with the authority of God's Holy One who proclaims God's good news. And the demon within him becomes fearful. Verse 25. With a word, Jesus sternly rebukes the demon. Quiet! And commands him to leave this wretched man. Jesus is God's Holy One who comes with authority and the demon has no choice but to obey. And once again, the villagers around Jesus are amazed at his authority. Wouldn't you be? The demon was right. Jesus is God's Holy One and he demonstrates his authority throughout this short encounter. Brothers, the question is, and sisters, how will we respond to his authority? In verse 27, we see that the crowd are amazed. Yes, amazed. But nothing more. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11 that it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for this town of people because of their response to him. Now, if you know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis, then you'll know that's a really stinging rebuke. Yes, the people of this town were amazed and they marveled at his authority and his power. But even this evil demon was more spiritually aware than the people of this town. It seems to this town, Jesus was just the latest public entertainer passing through. Remember, Jesus is God's holy one who proclaims God's good news. The question is, how will we respond to his authority? With a passing fancy, like the people of this town? Brothers and sisters, each of us who are believers in Jesus, for each of us there was a stage in our lives where, like the demon-possessed man, we were enslaved by our overwhelming desires of our flesh, slaves to our sin. And even now, we have a daily ongoing battle with sin, the flesh, and the devil. You don't need me to tell you this, do you? But the same power and authority which Jesus demonstrated in driving out the demon now lives in all who believe by his Spirit. And he is working in and with us to help us to overcome our temptations. 
The devil and his demons have no authority in our lives anymore if we believe in Jesus. We can no longer say, I couldn't help myself. If we believe in Jesus, we don't have that excuse. But instead, we cry out, Lord Jesus, help me to overcome. And know that he has promised to help you by his spirit living inside of you. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples and us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Do you remember what he says next? Jesus divests his authority to those who believe in him, to us. And he charges us to proclaim God's good news, the gospel. Brothers and sisters, whatever we face, we no longer face it with fear because we know that Jesus has, given, has been given all authority and nothing, not even that snake the devil can, can snatch us out of his powerful universe-shaping grip. The risen and reigning King Jesus is God's Holy One who proclaims God's good news. And if you believe, he has anointed you with his holy and life-giving spirit. And he has commissioned you to go out and share God's good news with the authority that comes from his name. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is God's Holy One who proclaims God's good news. The question is, how will we respond to his authority? Please bow your heads to pray. Father God, as we continue in this series in Mark's Gospel, by your Spirit, Help those who believe in you to, to see the authority that your son has. Authority over the devil and his demons. Authority over this world. Authority over our very lives. And would we submit by ourselves, uh, by your spirit, ourselves to your authority to follow you in everything you call us to do and be and say. And Father God, by the power that is at work in us by your spirit, use us for your glory, pray. Jesus is God's holy one who proclaims his good news. Lord, by your spirit, encourage and inspire us to proclaim your good news too. Amen.